The Tuesday of that Passover week is passing by. The warmth of the afternoon is starting at last to wane. Since the middle of the afternoon, a bank of clouds has rolled in. They are high and towery, dark at the base, bright white up the sides. They throw great patches of shade across Jerusalem, across the Temple Mount. By eventide, they will build and break in a brief rainstorm. Everyone will be delighted by these early rains, but they will spend themselves in minutes. Tomorrow will be hot. On the far side of the courtyard, Jesus, that teacher from Nazareth in Galilee, is in the midst of a mixture of both teaching and personal prayer. For a time, he will speak to the curious crowds, and they'll draw close, pressing against each other in the desire to get ever closer. But then, without warning, he will stride off and away, going within one of the porticos, he will lean against a pillar and close his eyes. His lips will move with a quiet, steady word of entreaty. His whole countenance will shift as if toward another realm. In these moments, the crowds slough off. They move away. Only his band of disciples stays near while he talks with his father. Later, but before the coming of the rains, still a few hours before the time of dinner, the religious leaders sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herod party to trap him in an argument. These had gathered not at the temple, but at the home of one of the most visible of the Pharisees, he who was greatest in terms of influence and even sway with the Romans. This crowd of Pharisees and Herodians grew large as the afternoon wore on. They were waiting for the arrival of a spy who was watching Jesus in the temple. Finally, this man arrived with word. They set out. They walked the crowded streets, parting the paths of the crowds by their numbers, their obvious importance, and then entered the temple en masse. There must have been 60 or 80 of these Pharisees and Herodians. They walked across the temple grounds looking for that teacher from Nazareth. Ah, there he is. He was leaning against a pillar, seemingly talking to himself. So they came up to him, pushing aside his disciples and some others gathered nearby, and they said to him, Master, we know that you are an honest man and that you are not swayed by men's opinion of you. They allow these words to sink in for a moment. They go on. Obviously, you don't care for human approval, but you do teach the way of God with the strictest regard for truth. The way he suddenly looks over at them intimidates. They pause. They almost don't go on, but they must. Is it right, they ask, speaking to him, the question they've agreed is the perfect trap. Is it right to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. He saw through them. Their minds, hearts, spirits were as if transparent in his sight. And he said to them, 
Why, why try this trick on me? Bring me a coin. Let me look at it. So they brought one to him, a worn denarius. One of the Pharisees dropped it into his upturned hand. He took it between his index finger and thumb, and he studied what we'd call its face side, squinting his eyes. He was reading to himself the inscription around the profiled head. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Jesus smiled to himself. This, the Son of God, smiled to himself, smiling at the thought of Tiberius being called the Son of a God. Whose face is this? asked Jesus, holding up the coin to these men. And whose name is in the inscription? Caesar's, they replied somewhat unsteadily. Then Jesus did a curious thing. With a flick of the thumb, he flicked the coin, whirling, twirling over in their direction. Multiple hands shot out to catch it and missed. The coin fell insignificant on the tiles. And Jesus said, turning his back not only upon them and their question, but entirely upon the reign of mammon upon the earth, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then walking off, he said more quietly, and to God, what belongs to God? A reply which staggered them. The Pharisees, the Herodians, move off. Now, unbeknownst to them and to Jesus, there was another spy listening in. And hearing all this, this man too walked off. He reported this encounter to his bosses, the Sadducees. These men, some twenty or so, then considered what they heard. For the space of a few minutes, they conferred together. Then some of these Sadducees, a party which maintains that there is no resurrection, approached him, walking the same intervening distances as that larger group had, and, without any greeting, introduction, or word of preparation, put this question to him. Master, Moses instructed us that if a man's brother dies leaving a widow but no child, then the man should marry the woman and raise children for his brother. The Sadducees glance at each other before going on. Now, they say, there were seven brothers, and the first one married and died without leaving issue. Then the second one married the widow and died leaving no issue behind him. The same thing happened with the third, and indeed, the whole seven died without leaving any child behind them. Finally, the woman died. Now, in this resurrection, they speak this word with disdain, with uncloaked mockery, when men will rise up again, whose wife is she going to be? For she was the wife of all seven of them. Jesus looked up at the heavens. For a moment he then hung his head. Finally, and with the exact 
sort of tone that such a question deserved in its answer, he replied to them, Does not this show where you go wrong, and how you fail to understand both the scriptures and the power of God? When people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. They live like the angels in heaven. But as for this matter of the dead being raised, have you never read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him in these words, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not God of the dead, but of living men. That is where you make your great mistake. For one long moment, the Sadducees strive to maintain their self-possession. They attempt to stand toe-to-toe with Jesus. But then, with the crowd quickly gathering, with their question reduced to absurdity, they likewise walk off. Jesus watches them go. Then one of the scribes approached him, and he approached Jesus alone. He had been listening to the discussion and noticing how well Jesus had answered them. He found the courage to stand apart from any group. His own heart was curious. The reputation of Jesus was to reward honest curiosity, and so he put this question to him. What are we to consider the greatest commandment of all? Jesus, with a smile, turned in his direction. The first and most important one is this, Jesus replied. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you, and saying that word, Jesus pointed directly at the lone scribe, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind, and with all your strength. A gleam of glory had passed over the face of Jesus. Saying these words, he seemed in ecstasy. And the second, he said, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And Jesus seemingly prepared to walk off away. I am well answered, replied the scribe, stopping Jesus in his tracks. The look in Jesus' eyes was now the same look in the scribe's eyes. The kingdom of heaven had spread spirit to spirit. Jesus turned back, delighted. And the scribe went on. You are absolutely right, when you say that there is one God and no other God exists but Him, and to love Him with the whole of our hearts, the whole of our intelligence, and the whole of our energy, and to love our neighbors as ourselves is infinitely more important than all these burnt offerings and sacrifices. And it was as if time stood still for one very long moment. Everything around these two melted off. Herod's temple, the crowds of Passover pilgrims, all the busyness associated with Hebraic worship, gone. 
the nearby sounds of all the sacrificial livestock, all the regular sounds of the city, the breeze overhead, disappeared. Even all that nonsense with the many Pharisees, the Herodians, the skeptical Sadducees, as if forgotten. Two men stand in a moment of time, one God, one man, and they simply look into the eyes of the other. For a moment, nothing else in the whole world matters. Their experience together is a union. And Jesus, noting the thoughtfulness of his reply, said to the man, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after this, nobody felt like asking him any more questions.